Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and to each other. I'm Amivora. Can anyone help? During the last year, many people found themselves more frequently or for the first time asking that simple question. Can anyone help? Even to people they'd never met before. Across the city, people were confronted with the reality that while so many had so much, others were facing difficult and often horrifying circumstances. Gary Bagley from NY Cares and Mitra Kalita from Epicenter NYC had a conversation about volunteerism and their experiences over the past year and a half just helping, first among friends and then strangers, organizing, matchmaking, rolling up their sleeves, and ultimately just showing up in any way they could. A group of people who believed they could make a difference. Before we begin, a quick message from our friends and sponsors at McKinsey & Company. Breathless to voice what gasoline is to a car. You know, if you have no gas in your car, your car goes nowhere. The same thing holds true for the voice. That's Denise Woods, author and esteemed voice and dialect coach. She's featured in McKinsey & Company's newsletter, The Shortlist. The Shortlist is a weekly curated sampling of McKinsey's need-to-know stories about work, the economy, and culture. If you don't breathe... You have no voice. For more of our best ideas, quick and curated, check out the shortlist at mckinsey.com forward slash shortlist. That's mckinsey.com forward slash shortlist. And thanks. Now, back to the show. Here's Mitra and Gary. The pandemic like just laid bare the disparities in our world, our country in particular, even more. And it was on the surface from day one. When a natural disaster is a hurricane, right? Like we're thinking geography. Now, those of us in that world know, even if we look at Superstorm Sandy, one end of the Rockaways recovers a lot faster than the other end of the Rockaways, right? And that's economic and it's racial and it's about social networks also. So we went through that and then... At the end of May, the murder of George Floyd takes on, sadly, even greater meaning because it should have, everyone before it should have had that that immense meaning. But at COVID-19, we just stopped and said, what is our role Mm -hmm. in the midst of it? And for New York Cares, there was a reminder right? That this is what we believe. We believe in racial and social justice. We need to stop and examine how well we're doing on that front as an organization. We have to keep going. But then, and I I think the word we've kept using at New York Cares is authenticity. We saw in that moment, there were all these groups of all kinds, nonprofits, corporations who stepped up and made these grand statements, who then honestly got called out for it. Saying like, what, what are you doing showing up now? Yes. Right. And for me, the opportunity that came out of the, the horrible incident, George Floyd's murder was this is a chance for us to also show up and say, we're not perfect as an organization. 
And we do want to be part of the solution. We're not here to be fixers. We're here to be supporters. Yeah. And here's what we're doing to be better. Here's what we're doing to understand. And how can we help leverage both the assets and needs of your community to support in whatever way we can? Did it shift messaging or was it organic or almost, I mean, George Floyd was so sudden, I wonder if it was also thrust upon us, right? Totally thrust upon us. And I still remember uh, that Friday night, that Saturday night, where senior leadership team, our chief talent officer, Naisha Holiday, our program officer, chief program officer, we were on the phone saying, we need to show up. We need to say something because this is that important. And by the way, civic engagement, volunteerism is usually and generally considered nonpartisan, right? We want everybody to give back in their community. So it's, we were also following that line of what is the right thing to do and what is the right thing to do and say within our mission. Gary, that's identical to the exercise we went through in June as you know, the word objectivity is assigned to journalism. Yes. So there was a raging debate over objectivity and this idea of a view from nowhere. And I didn't want us to launch with a view from nowhere because we're not only do we have a view from somewhere, we're actually kind of grounded in the place that we're trying to either help, get some attention on, connect, people to each other. And so we decided to be upfront that, yeah, there's a view from somewhere. We love our neighborhood. Right. We're going to stand up for our neighborhood. One uh, one thing I'm curious about, because this is one of the things that you and I discussed a lot. One of the things that's so cool about your story is on, on each step of it, you just kind of build more assets. And I love it. You know, it's very much a, a wonderful story of innovation. And, and you kind of see like what sticks and what resonates. And yeah. you find yourself, you kind of find yourself in the volunteer management business. Yeah. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden you go, well, what do, what do I do with this? And so I'm curious if you can, you know, just you and I talked a lot about, and actually we were introduced by one of your volunteers um, who happens to also be a journalist um, who just said, like, we're sitting here with hundreds of volunteers who do this thing, and we don't know what to do next with this group. So what sort of is happening there? And what questions has it led you to ask? Sure. So we are a for-profit media company. And I think it's becoming clear to me that for the volunteer arm, we should probably set up a nonprofit that better channels these energies. There's a lot of people who've self-identified as wanting to be a part of the solution. And this feels like a way that we can, to to your point about organization, A, get some funding against organizing and channeling those energies. And also, you know, making it a part of our journalistic model. So I think the greatest change for me and my journalism as a result of these volunteer efforts is to approach a story with a simple question of how can we help yep. versus what happened. Right. And if you think about the way journalism works, we cover what happened, right? Yeah. And in some ways, the fatigue over a lot of things happening all the time has created an element of 
almost callousness towards the news, a disconnect from the news, yeah. and definitely a mistrust. And so asking how can we help um, actually leads to better journalism. No, what's so interesting about that is from a social services perspective, we've talked about coming and, and, and asking the question, what do you need? Not coming and saying, here's what we have to offer. Mm. Right. Because that dynamic is what has for many social services group held us back because we come in and go, we know how to fix the problems in your neighborhood. And we, we know that without even saying hello to you. Right. And, totally. and that sets up this dynamic and this as you talk about journalism thinking, what do you need first as a question? There's a lot of power in that in terms yeah. of just yeah. switching the conversation for all of us. Yeah, and I, I wonder if this is the same for New York Cares, but the nature of our volunteers ranges from the unemployed and underemployed themselves, yep. so also people in search of some answers, as well as doctors who say, I would like to give back to communities that don't have doctors, and in Jackson Heights, that was an acute need, so for us yep. to have them in our universe has been a big game changer, so I do think for the next phase of Epicenter leveraging this network that's been created of people who can help folks access not just information, but actual services feels pretty key to us coming out of this. There's two other areas. One is just that also, to your point about the inequitable nature of the recovery, I'm very worried about kind of the land grab or the stimulus uh, that's to come in the next few years, both from small business, racial equity, and then healthcare. Those are all areas we've been working on. And so a number of nonprofits and others have come to us for advice. And it's interesting because in our case, what we didn't talk about a lot, but the reason that this was so front and center is because this is our neighborhood. These are not just our neighbors, but our family. And I, the faces of this was a black and brown virus. We felt like vaccines were a life or death issue. Yeah. And so it wasn't incentivized by, oh, you're going to get $40 per pop for vaccines. This, I, was, this was truly volunteer, right? And so now we're entering another phase of a lot of federal money around this. And I've been trying to figure out how do you tactfully get your due, but also continue to operate from a place of authenticity and sincerity. It is such a, a tremendous issue because one of the other things we see, and I think this is a big question for New York Cares, right? And for a lot of groups like New York Cares, we're working to uplift communities who then have less access to funding than we do. Yeah. Right. Because we're we're large enough that we have an infrastructure and donors naturally, I shouldn't say naturally, historically have thought we can trust New York Cares because it's a big institution. Right. And then you go, what about the group that's like pulling together a quarter of a million dollars a year and doing very good work in Jackson Heights? Right. What is the distance? And when we look at like, why is New York Cares New York Cares today? Well, we were founded by Manhattanites. We One of the early appeals of our work were, was to corporate New York. So with that came funding, with that came board members who could think about sustainability. With your board list comes trust, right? Donors trust you. And then you have your 990 and, and all of these things. And so 
we also have to, as institutions, like our, our pass it along is human capital. Mm. Right? Yeah. And that's a huge investment. It's huge. Yeah, I could see that. Meaning you see that as the asset. But and then I, we also yeah. look and go, how do we help the group locally start to build the kind of infrastructure that will attract the funding that it should rightfully have yeah. as well? Yeah. It, it, it's not a fight, but they, there is an imbalance. And during paycheck protection program, during all of this, uh, right, like it, it goes to folks who like applied on the first day. And that's, that's right. an implication that you have the infrastructure to do that. The other thing that's been keeping me up through the course of the volunteer efforts for Epicenter have been the racial composition of the volunteers themselves. Yeah. So unlike the group that we're serving and unlike our staff, majority BIPOC, uh, my husband and I are the children of immigrants and very committed to the neighborhood, our volunteer base was mostly white. And so I found myself doing a few things to diversify. One, if there were people who spoke other languages or who were clearly Black, Latino, or Asian, I would do like extra outreach to just keep them in our group and keep them engaged. I would sort of the same room, the same rules of diversifying your workplace, like applied of making sure that you're inclusive in language. And if there were conflicts as inevitably they are, to look at the dynamics of who's against who. And so I I really did go down um, that road. And I don't, I'll be honest with you, Gary, I don't know if I, am ultimately successful in that it's ongoing and I, I I'm upfront about it the volunteers themselves right. know I'll say look it's this is not something I'm happy about and as you know when you're looking for help and things are dire you sometimes go with the person who raises their hand first yep and so what, what should I do about this? <laughs> First, you're ending us on like a massive topic, but it's it's one of the things that we're really centered and focused on now. I, I still remember, I think it was four, could even be five years ago, our volunteer team leaders, we brought in some unconscious bias training. And one of the big takeaways I had from that was your volunteers are a for the most part, and especially with all the news of the last year, are also aware of the dynamic and self-conscious about the dynamic, if if they're quasi-aware, right? And so one of our questions first is, it's almost, it's so hard to set the goal. Like, what will it look like when we're all done on this front? The answer is we won't be. This is not a race that's going to stop one day and we're going to all break the tape and say, yay, we won the diversity question. So what we have to do is actually set up that space to say, you know, what is your discomfort or what issues are you facing as a volunteer with some guidance on how to enter mindfully, respectfully, humbly, as I always say. But then we also have to remember, you know, that in that one equation where there is a client or the the person being helped, that that dynamic's very alive for them as well. And so we need to first, I believe it's about both providing information, but then providing a space where we acknowledge the dynamic and if you will, begin a a collective process of working it through together. So Mm -hmm. 
you know, our, our efforts are going to be a lot like finding the folks like you in a neighborhood who are those connectors, yeah. those folks who know the neighborhood and who can say to a group like New York Cares, here's how you can help. And here's how we need you to show up. Mm. And, you know, in my dream is that eventually, let's call it a school program, um, that there will be volunteers there who are parents, caregivers, good friends of students, as well as some folks who took the seven train out and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and wanted to give back, but also entered with the, the both the willingness and the excitement to to learn, to understand that they had something to learn and to use their volunteerism. And then finally, the last thing I'd say is one thing we always hope for the volunteer to become more engaged in all ways civically. This conversation took place just days before Gary announced that he'll be leaving New York Cares at the end of the year. So what's next for him? Some executive coaching, some teaching, and also some strategy work with senior leadership teams. So yes, we have asked him to come volunteer with us at Epicenter. Do you have a story about getting involved in your community? Drop us a note at hello at epicenter-nyc.com. We want to hear it. Next, we're sharing a story from one of our neighbors, someone just like you. And today, we're joined by my colleague and friend, Andrea Pineda Salgado. You may recognize her voice from last week's episode, when we shared an excerpt from her documentary, Surviving Corona the street vendors caught in the middle of the virus and the neighborhood. You can find a link to her full documentary in our show notes. Andrea has been a part of the Epicenter NYC team since January, and she recently graduated from NYU. I'm actually planning to be away on parental leave starting later this month, but I'm excited to tell you that she'll be hosting this podcast, and you'll be in great hands. As a daughter of immigrants, Andrea is passionate about giving voice to marginalized people. Here's a bit of her New York story. I decided to become a journalist when I began to notice the effect news had on my community. Coming from a community that's surrounded by undocumented immigrants, I was able to see how news about changing immigration laws would scare people. Many sought comfort in places or people that took advantage of them, misinformed them, or scammed them. The Spanish language networks was a place where they can get accurate information, but oftentimes these places seemed to talk to the undocumented people while the English language networks talked about them, but neither talked with them. It was then when I realized the importance of journalism to marginalize communities and vice versa. These communities need to feel heard and journalists need to hear them. Throughout the pandemic, we constantly heard the phrase, black and brown communities were disproportionately affected, but rarely did we hear what these communities needed. What questions did they have? What scared them? Long story short, seeing the need for journalists who understood these kinds of communities made me want to become one too. One story I've covered was a feature on a children's protest for Black Lives Matter. This was done last June at the height of the movement and during the time where there was a lot of coverage on riots. When I covered them, I sat with them as they made signs and as they walked from Herald Square to Bryant Park. Kids of all races and ages marched together. It was amazing to see how kids as young as five were able to understand what was happening around them, the root of the movement, and the importance of using their voice. During a time of a lot of tension, I hope my coverage on this was able to bring a smile to someone and perhaps change their perspective on protests. I have always lived in New York City. I was born and raised in Corona, Queens, and I have lived here all my life. 
I've really only moved a couple of times, but I always stayed in the neighborhood. New York City has definitely changed a lot over the past year. I think every native New Yorker or simply anyone who has lived in New York for a long time and stayed during the pandemic saw how much New York City changed. It was so quiet and empty. No longer did you hear people chattering outside, but instead the sound of ambulances was heard over and over again. It was shocking to me to see New York hurting, but now I feel like it has bounced back in a positive way. I think this changed the attitudes of many people in the city. The attitude of the typical New Yorker who never talks and walks really fast is slowly going away because now I see that everyone talks to each other. Personally, I'm even happy to see the tourists that once annoyed me because it means that New York is finally getting over its worst time. My favorite New York City sound would have to be the noisy subway. Even though I'm not a fan of subway delays, I know that when I hear the rattling of the train tracks, I know my train is finally coming. The subway sound is indistinguishable when compared to other cities. If I travel, I know I'll be back in New York when I hear the train. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be here again next week. Today's episode was about helping, so we're not going to be shy about asking you for some help. If you have any friends or neighbors who you think should be a part of the Epicenter community, please tell them about us. Share this episode and help our community grow a little bigger every day. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on their website, and it's also linked to in our podcast description. Have a great day.